welcome to episode 198 of the Book Cougars, Two Middle-Aged Women on the Hunt for a Good Read. I'm Emily. And I'm Chris. And as usual, we wanted to start this episode with some thank yous. Yes, we have some new members of our Patreon community. Thank you to Jessica, Melissa, Rhonda, Lizzie, and to Joan, who increased her contribution. Thank you all so much. We greatly appreciate your support. And also, Happy New Year, everybody. Oh my gosh, Happy New Year. Yes, indeed. 2024, may it be healthier and happier than years gone by. Indeed. Before we jump in, we have a plan for what we're going to talk about, but I have breaking news. Okay. If people remember on episode 197, we talked about our anniversary lunch where we went to Shea Ben Diner in Manchester, Connecticut, because we wanted to have poutine. They specialize in poutine there, which is a Canadian dish, French Canadian dish of French fries, smothered in delicious gravy and cheese curds. And then you can get other toppings, but that's the traditional way it's served. Well, when we went, our server told us it was actually pronounced Putin. Putin. Yes. And we were like, oh, because she said the word and we were like, oh, wait, how do you pronounce it? And that's what she said. And we're like, oh, we thought it was poutine. And they're like, no, it's Putin. And we thought, oh, okay, well, you know, they own the restaurant. They must know what they're talking about. So we announced it to our listeners as a fact. <laughs> well, <laughs> and then I found myself fact. A, a questionable fact, right? We didn't check any resources. So I checked some resources. I had Christmas Eve and Christmas dinner with two women who are French Canadian. And I said, I must ask this question. Is it poutine or Putin? And they looked at me like... <laughs> I can't even tell you the looks on their face. They're like, of course it's poutine. <laughs> Putin, who told you that? <laughs> so mystery solved. Yes. Now we know the facts. Indeed. I mean, maybe wherever a little hamlet they're from originally, that's how they pronounced it there. Who knows? Or maybe it's just some kind of Connecticut morphing of the word. Or maybe she was just playing us for false, Chris. Who knows? <laughs> There's always that. <laughs> So anyway, this is our annual top 10 reads of the year episode. After we finish filling you in on some information, we have our conversation with Russell from Ink and Paper Blog. Yep. Check out his booktube channel if you're not familiar with Russell. He has been a booktuber for quite a few years and he reads a wide variety of things, but I always think of him as the literary fiction guy. Yeah, he does read a lot of good literary fiction. Yeah. yeah. Also, he knows his presses. So he'll read from really small presses, novels that I've never even heard of. And there were definitely some of those on his list this year. We can't wait to share it with you. But before we get started, we want to announce our first quarter read-along title for our 2024 Year of Reading Romance. We are so excited about this theme. We think some of you might be wondering what it's all going to be about. So we're here to tell you a little bit about it right now. First, we want to remind you that when we went to the Yale Romance Conference in the fall, the first night they showed a documentary called Love Between the Covers. And that documentary, we feel like is a really great place to start to get some backstory about this genre. And it's available for free streaming on YouTube. So we'll put a link to that in the show notes. Highly encourage you to start there. 
romance as a genre has a very long history. When we were trying to figure out which four novels we would like to read in 2024, it was a really hard decision in a lot of ways because we went back and kind of studied the beginnings. And a lot of folks look at Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen as the novel that started romance in the happily ever after vein, the H-E-A. And it's also the novel that established the enemy to lovers subgenre of romance. But, you know, that goes back to 1813. And we also know that a lot of people are very familiar with Pride and Prejudice. I might reread it again in 2024. But really, looking through the history of romance, there was a time period where there were a lot of bodice rippers. And one of the things, and this is a very generalization that I'm saying here, one of the things that goes with that sometimes is rape. That fine line sometimes, as people used to say, between rape and, well, she actually really wanted it, which is gross, we know now. And people use the word rapey, that some of these books were rapey, which is another problematic term that we even have such a word in our vocabulary. But we really weren't interested in reading books like that. And we didn't want to subject our listeners to reading anything in that vein. We're much more interested in looking at what's going on and romance today in more recent times. One of the books that people identify as kicking off the romance trend in the States is a novel by Kathleen E. Woodywist called The Flame and the Flower. And that's one of those books that has rapiness in it. We're going to jump to the 1990s is where we're going to be starting Uh, We chose a novel by a woman named Beverly Jenkins, who was at that Yale Romance Conference, and we fell in love with her. She's a real spitfire and speaks her mind quite directly, and we just thought we have to read a novel by her. Yeah, so we chose Indigo, which was originally published in 1996. It talks about the Michigan Underground Railroad, but also about enslaved people. Beverly Jenkins is an African-American woman, and she writes African-American characters, historical fiction. She has a lot of different types of series. If you check out her website, she has, I didn't even count all of her novels, but just tons of them, some historical fiction and some more contemporary. Yeah, and Indigo was originally published in 1996, but it's been reissued in 2014. I don't think there had been an audiobook either. Now there is both a reprinting of the print copy, there's an e-copy, there's an audiobook. we've looked, they're readily available in library catalogs. So we're hopeful that all of you have easy access to it. We will put a link to a copy on our bookshop.org page for those of you who do want to purchase a paperback copy. We're hoping we get a chance to talk to Miss Bev as she is referred to in the industry, because as Chris said, she is quite a spitfire, including talking about how she loves her job because she gets to wear her pajamas all day, <laughs> which I can totally relate to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we are going to have a Zoom conversation about our first quarter read along, Indigo, on March 3rd, Sunday, March 3rd at 7 p.m., Send us an email at bookcougars at gmail.com if you'd like to participate. Um, what else do we need to tell people, Chris? 
oh, I think we're going to start a general Goodreads thread on romance. So we can put some of these historical texts like Chris is talking about in there. Y'all might want to read them. We really wanted to go back to an early novel, just like we did with our year last year, reading books about books, where we read Parnassus on Wheels. And as we started to investigate, we realized we might want to do a little bit more research. So one of our read-along books, who knows, might go back in time. But I think we probably will end up more looking at what's happening in the more recent years in romance. Right. I mean, there's so many different subgenres. There's the historical aspect that we've already mentioned, science fiction, horror, cozies. I guess maybe clean and cozies are the same. Clean romances are where there's no violence or cussing happening or sexual contact, really, from what I understand. This is going to be a year of learning about romance for us. And we hope to visit some romance bookstores and just kind of read around and, and discover what subgenre we might be most drawn to. Because that's one thing that came out of that Yale conference we attended is that if you haven't found romance that you enjoy yet, it could be you just haven't found your subgenre. Yeah, I think that's really true. So we'll see. We're not twisting any arms because I'm a little bit on the fence about romance myself. I'm just trying to be open and, and learning a lot this year is my goal. Yeah. And thank you already to our listeners. We've been getting great emails with information about reference books, people that they think would make good guests for our industry spotlights where we feature people in the know. So thank you and keep those emails coming because we want to learn from you as well. Yeah. So coming up next is our conversation with Russell. We do a bit of a round robin thing where we each talk about one of our top tens of 2023. Remember, we want to know what your top tens are. So in the show notes, check out the link we've put there that will send you to a Google form where you can list your top 10 books of the year. If you have any trouble with the form, feel free to just email your top tens to us at bookcougars at gmail.com. And all the form asks you for is the title and the author. You don't need any other info, but it's really fun because it populates it into a spreadsheet. And then we get to see all of these delicious books that everyone read. Yes. And you grow our TBRs. All right, everybody. Happy, Happy reading. This episode is sponsored by Book of the Month, a book subscription service that offers a curated selection of titles to choose from. The books are available in hardcover, and for you audiobook listeners, they have recently introduced a selection of audiobooks, so you can choose a hardcover or an audiobook each month. Well, my December pick just arrived. I'm super excited. It is No One Can Know, a novel by Kate Alice Marshall. And this is one of those book of the month perks where the book is being released early to members. The actual release date is in later January 2024. So I chose this one. It's a bit of a thriller, possibly a little horror-ish, not exactly sure. But 14 years ago, parents were murdered and the three young daughters were there and they've never talked about it. And now they're grown up and one of the sisters needs to move back into the parents' home which has been standing there empty all those years. So I look forward to digging into this. And a fun little thing, Book of the Month included a sheet of stickers, Seasons Readings, and they're just adorable. One is a foxy-looking creature reading a book in a sleigh, and it says, 
these books slay, you know, just kind of fun stuff. So how about you? Well, one of the things about being middle aged is sometimes you order things and you don't remember what they are. The last book I chose was an audiobook. So I didn't have the pleasure of their signature blue box arriving on my doorstep. But this month I did and the box arrived and I don't know what's inside. So I'm going to unbox it now. Oh, I got the cute stickers also. My book is called A Winter in New York by Josie Silver. It's got a really fun cover with two people eating ice cream cones in their winter gear in front of what looks like the Brooklyn Bridge. The blurb says a young chef stumbles upon a secret family recipe that might lead her to the love and life she's been looking for. Oh, now I know why I chose this book. (laughs) A Winter in New York, Josie Silver. If you'd like to try a subscription, head to bookofthemonth.com to pick a book. For a limited time, you can get the first book for just $5 with code for you. F-O-R-Y-O-U. Check the show notes for links. Today is December 27th, and we're here for our fourth annual Top 10 Reads of the Year with our booktube friend, Russell, of Ink and Paper Blog. Welcome, Russell. Hi, everyone. I'm so excited to be back. So for those of you who are new to the Book Cougars, this is an annual tradition where we each share our top 10 reads of the year. And they're not necessarily 2023 releases, just the top books that we read. We do a little bit of a round robin. And you would think, you know, three people times 10 books should equal 30 books. But it seems with each passing year, the number of books mentioned seems to grow. So we'll see what this year holds. We're super excited to see everyone's top tens. We haven't shared these with one another. So here we go. Russell, would you like to get us started? Yes, of course. So I did things a little different this year, Book Cougars. One, I never usually cheat, but I could not get down to 10. So I have 11. So I (laughs) want to be fair that I, I am taking advantage of that. I had three years of no cheats to sneak in a book this year. And I did not put them in numerical order this year. Normally I do one through 10, but this year I decided just to alphabetize by author last name. So yeah, a little bit different, a little mixing up. So I'm starting with a book called The Road to Dalton by Shannon Bowring. It is out from Europa. It came out this year. It is one of those books, if you like books that are about a tiny town, and everybody that lives in it. It's set in this tiny town in Maine, and it's about all of the underbelly secrets, all that kind of stuff that's going on in the town. The main character is a woman who is married without children, who has been having a known affair with her best friend, who is married to another man with a child, and sort of the implications of all of that. And there's small town antics. There's all that great stuff. It is fantastic. I don't think enough people have read it. And Shannon has said that a sequel is coming in the new year. So if you like all of Kitrich, we know where like you get to know the whole town through everybody else or something like that. You like small town stuff. I highly recommend The Road to Dalton, Shannon Bowring. I always say her last name wrong. And that's out from Europa. Wow. Small towns. (laughs) (laughs) 
That's all I'm going to say. I'm from one. But some- <laughs> yes, I think I'm obsessed with them because I've only lived in big cities. So mm, I think of yeah. like this idea of the small town being so wonderful. And I'm sure it's different if you've only lived in small towns. So. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you want to get away, right? <laughs> Chris, you want to go next? Sure. I have to say I'm a little discombobulated already that Russell didn't do his in order. You know, I just want to mix it up this year. Yeah. He was texting me late last night, like, I can't do it. I can't do 10. <laughs> there are some heavy hitters that didn't make this list. Mm. I know. We should always say, these are our top 10s as of this moment in time. That's 100%. right. I have to say that yeah. or I'd never be able to play. Right. So my top 10, and I actually tried to put them in a little bit of order this year. I'm holding it up. And this is the dictionary of the book. A Glossary for Book Collectors, Booksellers, Librarians, and Others by Sidney E. Berger. And this is a reference book. And I don't think I've had a reference book as a top 10 before. But I am in love with this book. This is the second edition. It just came out this year, 2023, by Roman and Littlefield. They're a big publisher. They do a lot of library books, a lot of library reference books and and other types of reference books. What I love about this book is... If you were anywhere reading anything about books, say you're looking at rare books on a website and there are words that you don't understand or abbreviations that you don't understand, you can look at this book and it will tell you what you need to know. Because that vocabulary in any field is so important. And this gives you the vocabulary, like I said, anything from rare books, how they're described to bookbinding what happens in bookbinding. Just a wonderful book. Highly recommend it. Again, that's the Dictionary of the Book by Sydney Berger. She's a librarian now, folks. That book makes total sense. <laughs> My first book is Lark Ascending by Silas House. Oh, this book was everything to me. As soon as I read it, I knew it was going to be on my top 10. And it's set in the near future. It's a survival story, a climate change story. It's about climate refugees who are fleeing Maryland. They go as a family through Maine. They're trying to get on a boat to take them to Ireland. America is fraught with religious nationalists and fires from climate change. It's a real tearjerker, but it also is uplifting. And I'm always shocked when an author can do that. The reason it has this cute little dog on the cover is because Lark ends up befriending a dog and there aren't many dogs left. And this dog helps him to survive. It was the winner of the Southern Book Prize for Fiction. I had never heard of it until it came out in paperback this year. Highly recommend Lark Ascending by Silas House. I think if you like Silas, that book, you will like Silas House because he writes very similar to that. Very Appalachian, very tear jerky. Have you read his other novels? I've read Southern. Is it Southmost, Southernmost or something like that? Yeah. Yeah. And my friend Kendra Winchester of the late great reading women is a huge fan of Silas House. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. She's now read read Appalachia. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. New yeah. podcast. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. 
Okay, so there's going to be somewhat of a theme in my reading this year. I read a lot of things about families and family dynamics. So the next book I'm going to tell you about is called Little Monsters by Adrian Brodeur. This is out from Avid Reader Press. And if you don't trust me, this was also in one of, oh, what is her name? She runs the Tennessee bookstore. She's super, super famous. Ann Patchett? Ann Patchett also recommended it in her Instagram feed. So this is the story of a family set in Cape Cod. We have a father who is a renowned oceanographer who is coming towards the end of his career and wants to make the one last big discovery. But he feels his bipolar medication is getting in the way, so he stops taking. And he has a son who has very, very conservative political agenda and a daughter who is an artist. And all of their family drama starts to come together as it's time to celebrate the father's birthday. And the interesting thing is there's the addition of a new young woman who has found out that her father is also this man and no one knew about. Mm -hmm. So it's all of this stuff, this family history. Cape Cod is very much a character in the book as well. It's a very specific location, Cape Cod. It plays a part. The son is trying to get the father to go away. The daughter's trying to celebrate her art. And she finds out she's pregnant and it changes everything. Okay, sign me up. Little Monsters, (laughs) Adrian Brodeur out from Avid Reader Press and highly recommend it. I bet you you'll sit down and you will not stop reading until the last page. I was going to say it looks thin, like a little thin novel. Um, I mean, it's 300 pages. Oh, that's not thin. Yeah. Okay. No. Well, my next book on the list is one that I discovered while browsing the shelves at the Institute Library in New Haven, Connecticut here. And it's Wilma Rogers by Sophia Belzer Engstrand. This novel came out in 1941, and it is about a young librarian who leaves New York to take over a public library in Milo, Illinois. So it's going to be her first time in charge of a library herself. What made me check it out is opening it up. The former librarian put a little blurb in the book because this is published in 1941. The dust jackets, if there was one, wasn't kept. So there's the title and the author on these books. It's like, what is it about? So opening it and seeing it's about a librarian in Illinois, I was like, okay, I got to check this out. And I ended up loving it so much. It was a nice snapshot into what was important to librarians and the public back in the 40s or late 30s, which are still pretty much the things that we're interested in today, which is having a wide variety of reading materials available. But there are also things that we still deal with today as well, like people who want to censor things, people who think certain types of information shouldn't be available. And one of the cases in this, it's a magazine that depicts childbirth that one of the women in town thinks should not be available for children to see. There's disruptions in the libraries, you know, rowdy teenagers where the police are called, which is something that still happens today. All in all, too, it's a pretty decent love story. You know, the rich man in town who basically owns the town but doesn't want to do anything with the library Well, Wilma Rogers wins over everyone in the end. Spoiler alert. (laughs) I should say, too, that this author, Sophia Belzer-Engstrand, is from a town called Berwyn, Illinois, which is next to Cicero, Illinois, which is where 
I'm from originally, and I've never come across a rider from Berwyn, Illinois, I don't think. So that was a fun discovery as well. Cannot find a copy of this book anywhere. This is still the Institute Library's copy that I have in my hands. I had found two online and I bought one and it said, sorry, no longer available. So I went to this other seller, same thing. I got a note back saying, sorry, it's no longer available. So have you just been renewing that forever from the Institute Library? (laughs) (laughs) I haven't renewed it yet. I'm sure it's very overdue. Um, Oh, yeah, look, it was due June 16th, 2023. Even librarians want the one copy you can find, Chris. You need to send it back so others can enjoy it. (laughs) I didn't didn't think librarians had overdue books. Huh? Newsflash. It's a dirty little secret. (laughs) My next book is a novel that I just finished reading. I think a couple weeks ago called The Queen of Dirt Island by Donnell Ryan. This is a short little book. I think, Russell, I did read it, maybe not in one sitting, but probably two. It's written in these short little vignettes. Every chapter has a one word title, and it's two pages long. So it's almost flash fiction. And it's a story of four generations of women in rural Ireland living together. The opening pages, there's a terrible tragedy where a man dies in a car accident. And so the four women living together, one is the mother of that man, then the wife slash daughter-in-law, the daughter, and then eventually the granddaughter. Anne in Austin, because I talked about this on the last podcast, just emailed us this week and she said, Please, please go listen to the NPR Book of the Day interview with Donnell Ryan because he explains why he wrote the chapters the way he did. And it turns out, I did listen, thank you, Anne, that each of the chapters is actually exactly 500 words long, which I never would have noticed, you know, so explicitly. But he described the reason why he did it is he wanted to emulate the idea of 24 hours in a day that something very specific with a number of words emulating this 24 hours and how sometimes in a day, nothing happens, you vacuum the floor and you make dinner. And then sometimes in the course of a day, a tragedy happens. Sometimes a baby is born. And that's exactly what he does with this novel. It's beautifully written. The relationships are amazing. Absolutely loved this book, The Queen of Dirt Island by Donnell Ryan. Yeah. So Dirt Island, is that like a nickname for Ireland? No, one of the characters in the book's family owns a piece of property that has a little island in the middle. And some antics ensue about who has rights to that land. And the woman who does have rights, they refer to her as the Queen of Dirt Island, because that's what they call that island in the middle of their property interesting cool interesting okay so this is the book that would have been number 11 it was that one that i was like okay you can leave it off and then i said no that i know i'm not gonna leave it (laughs) off so it's alice sadie celine it's by sarah blakely cartwright it just came out this month I believe. Yeah, I think it came out in December from Simon & Schuster. So this is how I sell this book. Celine is Sadie's mom. Alice is Sadie's best friend. 
Alice and Celine have decided to see where their relationship can go. Sadie doesn't know. Mm. So it's about a mom and her daughter and their relationship. They left the Midwest. They move. She becomes a professor at Berkeley. She comes out of the closet, kicking, screaming, and showing it all off. Sadie is her best friend and her daughter. You know, those relationships that can be very complicated. She meets Alice in school. They're immediately best friends. And now they're adults. And Celine shows up at a play that Alice is in. And their relationship goes a direction that no one saw. And what do you do when all of those things start to come together? And you have to sort of assess what are your relationships really mean to you? Mm. It has such a compelling title. I was just looking at that novel in the library, Russell. Oh, it is really, really good. It's kind of shocking. Like, you don't know where it's going to go, because you don't know exactly how it's going to work out. It's very Berkeley. <laughs> it's very yeah. Berkeley. <laughs> so. And is it contemporary to today? Yes. It flashes back, obviously, to when Sadie was a child and when they were in high school and stuff like that. But the major takes place up and down California. So mm. I just want to take a moment to let listeners know all of these titles are listed in our show notes for this episode, bookcougars.com. So if you've been frantically writing down titles, you can take a break and just listen and know that those titles will be available. My next one is another nonfiction. It's Viral Justice, How We Grow the World We Want by Ruha Benjamin. It won the Harriet Beecher Stowe Award for Social Justice. I listened to the audio version, which Benjamin narrates, and this book is written by somebody who is a sociologist, a professor, who usually studies really big systems. And during the pandemic, life got small, as it did for so many of us. So she started focusing in more on smaller things at a time when the pandemic is raging, Black Lives Matter is in full swing, and she's an African-American woman. So this book deals a lot with race and class and some gender. It's just so well-written. It's elegant and really well-organized and a pretty graceful read, even though you can tell it's packed with research. So that's one of the reasons I love it. And then that she, she doesn't just talk about problems but also gives examples for small actions that people can take, that we can all take and come together and kind of grow a virus of justice. She takes the idea of viruses being something that's spread and is looking at it as something that we can create and spread ourselves that is going to help create the world we want, as her subtitle says. So highly recommend either the book, I have the library book in my hand, or as I said, the audio is very good as well. And that's Viral Justice by Ruha Benjamin. My next book is my favorite poetry collection for this year, which is Something So Good It Can Never Be Enough by our friend Shuli Kaywood. Shuli has hey. been a guest many times on the podcast, maybe not as many as Russell, but they're probably neck and neck. She was most recently on episode 191 to talk about this book. So if you want to listen to her talk about it, not just me, I highly recommend you listen to that episode. I have been keeping this collection on my nightstand. I've read the poems many times over. And what I love about it is it's accessible poetry that I understand. 
And it's also a collection where I've liked every poem. Sometimes I've read a poem that I really like by a poet, and then I get their collection and I'm like, oh, that was the only poem I really liked. But I don't feel that way about this one. She played around with a lot of different forms this time. The themes are about longing and regret, love and loss, eating and cooking. And the title of the collection comes from a poem called My Mother's One Request, which is a beauty about how she used to make these buttermilk rolls from the New York Times for her mom every year and how it's changed over the years. Super, super, super book of poetry. Highly recommend Something So Good It Can Never Be Enough by Shuli K. Wood. I second that. Whenever people listen to these, they must be an aw- We are such different readers, the three of us. <laughs> it's like no one, anyone could come here and probably find something in these three very, very different lists. That's what I love about it. Yeah, and we already got an email from a listener who was like, ooh, can't wait for Russell's episode. I always enjoy the books he recommends. So well, no pressure. No pressure. No pressure. Well, the next book that I'm going to recommend is Day. It's a novel by Michael Cunningham. You may remember Michael Cunningham. He wrote The Hours, which was everywhere. It won the Pulitzer. Then it was a movie, and it was nominated for a bunch of Oscars. Had Meryl Streep in it. Day is his newest novel. And this is one of those books where I just read every page, amazed that someone could put these sentences together. It takes place over three years on the same exact day, so three years in a row. It starts in 2019, and then 2020, and then 2021. It's about a brother and sister and her family. The brother is a gay man who lives in the house with them, and she is married and she has two children. In the first part, he is getting ready to move out because they need the space for their family. And it's this choice of moving out, where to move, where to live. New York, very difficult to find a place to live. He's a sixth grade teacher, I believe. What can he afford and all of that? And the change that that's going to have. You find very quickly that these three adults are so interconnected that they're scared of what the world will happen next. In the second section, he has gone to Iceland and the pandemic has hit and he's stuck. And the family is dealing with being stuck in the house together. The daughter is terrified of the virus. And then in 2021, we see the outcome of all of it. It is sad. It is touching. It is beautiful. It's about family and love and need and relationships and how they change. Michael Cunningham can write a sentence like few others. Like, I can't even. It's not a happy book, but it's a book where you leave it feeling very uplifted, if that makes sense. We all touch each other's lives and our families touch our lives and sometimes in good ways and sometimes in bad ways, but it's always has a lasting effect. So that's Day by Michael Cunningham, Random House. It's pretty darn good. I just saw him, Russell, in conversation with Amy Bloom at RJ Julia's in Madison and whoo, what an amazing conversation. I can only imagine. Yeah, they're both so smart. Well, my next book is End Papers by Jennifer Saverin Kelly. This is a debut novel that I just adore. It's about a, a woman named Dawn who's genderqueer, and she's a bookbinder by day. She repairs books at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. 
but she's kind of struggling as an artist. She hasn't created anything new in quite a while. She's really struggling with that. And one day at work, underneath some end papers in a book, she discovers something that someone had tucked away in there once upon a time. So part of the book is about her trying to understand this mysterious hidden letter that she finds tucked into those end papers. And then it's also her relationship. She's in a relationship with a man who kind of wishes she were a man. And, you know, she herself is genderqueer. So she's, it's one of those stories where she doesn't necessarily fit in anywhere. She doesn't fit in with her family. She doesn't fit in all that well in her relationship, in the queer community. She's not easy to identify in the categories that her queer community would want her to be. I don't want to give any spoilers or anything, but it's really a wonderful book about how important it is to have queer ancestors. Many of us who are queer, we don't have those older role models. So finding people in the past that can be empowering figures for us is just so crucial and in a good part of the story. And it's a debut, I think I mentioned. I've been following Jennifer on different social media, and she is working on her second book. She herself is a a book person. She's an editor for a press, but she also does her own book binding. So she knows what she's talking about when she describes her character using a bone folder and things like that. I mean, really, I have to say this year, if I have to call my year of reading anything, it could be the year of the bone folder. (laughs) (laughs) I'm doing a happy dance because that was one that I wanted to put on my top 10. And I was like, "Ooh, surely Chris is going to do that. (laughs) Well, I have that on my shelf. I think the publisher sent that to me. So clearly I need to pick it up. It's really good. So yeah, so out this year from Algonquin. End paper is Jennifer Saverin Kelly. And she was a guest on episode 178 of the book Cougars this year. So highly recommend you go back and listen to that episode as well. Yeah, I'm so relieved you put that on your list. There's a <laughs> book that I think Russell's going to have on his list too, that I took off my top 10. Hopefully I'm right. Yeah. Well, that's what I that's what I figured was Shirley's poetry collection. I was like, Shirley Emily is going to have that on. We play these games in our minds as we (laughs) try to whittle down to 10. So my favorite cookbook of the year is Yogurt and Whey, Recipes of an Iranian Immigrant Life by Homa Dashtaki. She is the founder of a company called White Mustache Yogurt that I only can get when I'm in New York City. And I always scramble to the Grand Central Station Market and try to take one or two home with me. She has the recipe for that yogurt in this cookbook. So I am now a fan of making my own homemade yogurt, which once you start, you never want to turn back. This one's the award for the book I've checked out the most from the library and renewed the most, which is how I determined that it was my favorite cookbook of the year. It has beautiful photographs. I mean, even just the end papers, really beautiful. Showing Russell and Chris. And then she tells stories about her immigrant life. She also named the company White Mustache after her father and his big white mustache. So this is an example of I'm showing Russell and Chris what the 
yummy food looks like. I haven't had dinner. Not fair. Ooh, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, listeners who may not know this, Russell is on the West Coast. So this episode always goes down in the books as the one where Russell is recording hungry and I'm up way past my bedtime. (laughs) So again, that's called Yogurt and Whey, Recipes of an Iranian Immigrant Life by Homa Dashtaki. And I highly recommend getting cookbooks out of the library. You can decide to never own them, or you can see if you are enjoying them before you decide to buy them. Emily, my cookbook recommendation, I can do one. It was on my list, but I'm going to throw it out there. Start here, Instructions for Becoming a Better Cook by Sola Aweli. My husband and I have a complete internet crush on Sola. We just wish that we were friends with her and her husband, Ham. We watch everything they do, but it's her first cookbook. We bought it. We love it. We use it all the time. And she really does try to teach you how to do things and then fudge them for yourself and figure that out, which I think is always really fun. Yeah, I listened to an interview with her recently. And she's like, just relax. Don't worry so much, everybody. (laughs) Yeah, her and her husband do this thing on the New York Times where they are given a secret ingredient and they have to make a full meal out of it in an hour. And we're obsessed. We watch it all the time. And then Chris, for you, she has a whole cooking thing on the History Channel where she makes ancient recipes, like the first known version of something like mac and cheese or pizza or something like that. And she tells you the whole history of it, which is always kind of fun. So. Oh, wow. Well, that sounds like a a future (laughs) crush for me, too. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) A hundred percent. She's your vibe, Chris, I promise. So, well, I think this may be the book that Emily thought was going to be on my list. And so she, but I have to say Wellness by Nathan Hill um, out from Knopf is a book. I never read The Knicks. I started it and never finished it. And when this book came to me in the mail, I was just like, it is long and it is dense. Am I going to get to it? This is one of the most, one of the funniest books I have ever read in my entire life. It is dense on the page, but quick to the eye. Like it is one of those things where you will read it so fast. And it's a fantastic audiobook if you're an audiobook reader. It's a story of a relationship. Start to present, it's basically a young couple that see each other across two buildings. And it's in Pittsburgh, right? No, Chicago. Is it right? I can't remember the name. It's been a while since I've read it. I I apologize. Yeah, Chicago. Yeah. Chicago. And it really just takes you through all these different parts of their lives from their infatuation to utter falling in love at first sight to those times. Relationships are hard. And it really deals very poetically, I think, with some of the struggles that people go through in a relationship. There's a scene with her two-year-old toddler in a grocery store where I was laughing so loud, I had to put the book down because I was reading it in public. And I was like, people are going to think I'm so weird. It's like awkward and then engaging and the people and it's so good. Right, Emily, it's so good. Yes, this is the book. You're right. I was like, oh, gosh, (laughs) Russell has to have this. But I also thought it was really sad. Did you not think it was sad? I think it was sad, but in a way, I also thought it was truthful Mm -hmm. because I think relationships are not always like that glorified sense of perfectness. Mm -hmm. Um, Perfection, I guess, is a better word. Um, Sometimes we concede that it's not going to be great or it may not be perfect and we're going to stay. Right? Yeah. 
And that's an okay decision to make too, I think. But our friend Ryan also read this book this year and he is not having a great reading year. He's read only a handful of books, but he loved this book. So Ryan at Read by Ryan on Instagram recommends it. I recommend it. Emily recommends it. He also read The Knicks before it came out. So that's like 1,200 pages of Nathan Hill, I think. Yes. (laughs) I need to read The Knicks. I've heard nothing but fantastic things about it. I was a zealot for that book the year it came out. I just, I bought it for everybody and told everybody to read it. Yeah. I love him. Wow. I'm having some FOMO over here. (laughs) (laughs) Well, just, you know, it's 1,200 pages of books. You got this. We believe in you. There's just so many amazing writers right now that mm-hmm. just do so many interesting things and you can get lost very easy. Yeah. And mm-hmm. overwhelmed. <laughs> yeah. And found. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So we're up to, well, this is book five. That was Russell's five, but he's not ranking. I kind of am. And my fifth is Hester by Lori Lico Albanese. This is a book that we read for our Scarlet Summer this year. It is an imagining of what inspired Nathaniel Hawthorne to write The Scarlet Letter. So it is a wonderfully imaginative tale, I think, that you can see The Scarlet Letter obviously reflected within it. But what I like the most about it is that she doesn't glorify Hawthorne. I think she presents a pretty rounded picture of him as much as we can know about him. But I really love the way she brings in the issue of slavery into the story, enslavement of African Americans during this time period, early to mid 19th century. I thought she did it in a very creative, imaginative and realistic way to me. So very much enjoyed it. I think that one of the prettiest covers of the year as well, the hardcover has this wonderful green leafage with beautiful reddish pink roses on it. Again, that's Hester by Lori Lico Albanese. And she was our guest on episode 189. And that's another book that I was going to put on my list and thought Chris would have it. I should go out and play the lottery after this. I will say that was on my top 10 last year. Oh, was it? Yep. Oh, did you, you had an arc or something? On my video top 10, I did not put it in, uh, I think the one with you all. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, it was one of those books that was 11 or 12 when I didn't cheat last year. (laughs) Um, But no, I think that book is fantastic. So high recommendation for me as well. It's fantastic. And are you a fan of The Scarlet Letter, Russell? So I always say I'm glad I read The Scarlet Letter, but it's not a book I've ever been able to reread. Mm, yeah. So I would say it probably goes on that list for me. We do have a listener that reads it every year. She loves it. Mm-hmm. You it's know one who of those you are. books you don't realize how it ingrained it is into American pop culture until you've read it and you mm-hmm. see how often it is referenced in just general terms in our society. Uh, yeah. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. My next book is from an author that hails from where I used to live in Ohio, Morning in This Broken World by Katrina Kittle. When I was going through and looking at all the books I've read this year, this is one where the characters have really stayed with me, which is why I chose it. The title of the novel, Morning in This Broken World, was inspired by the poem Invitation by Mary Oliver 
from the stanza, it is a serious thing just to be alive on this fresh morning in the broken world. And this is a pandemic novel told from multiple points of view. And it's early in the pandemic. So the opening chapter, we have Vivian, who's at an assisted living facility. She's really still vibrant, but her husband has just passed away. So she doesn't need to stay there. And she's desperate to get out of the assisted living facility before everything goes on lockdown for quarantine. So she invites Luna, who is a caretaker there and really helped her with her husband, and Luna's two children to come move into her house with her. And from there, the novel really takes off. Like I said, the chapters are told from different points of view. And it's really about chosen family and how even in times of crisis, you can come together and survive with people that you don't know very well. And I just thought her character development in this book was fantastic, which is probably why I still remember the characters to this day. You know, when I first opened it up, I have to admit, I tried to read it once and I was like, I I can't do pandemic. And then the second time I opened it up, I thought, actually, this is a really great realistic portrayal of what it was like in those super early days, you know, Mm -hmm. which I was surprised I'd kind of forgotten that feeling. When we were living through it, I was like, I'm never going to forget this, you know, but she really reminded me of some of that. So I really enjoyed it. Again, it's called Morning in This Broken World, Katrina Kittle. And she was our guest on episode 188 with another author, Aaron Flanagan, whose book I also really enjoyed. I read two pandemic novels, I think are a thing now, right? We're Mm -hmm. seeing a lot of them being published. So if that's sort of something that you're going through, The Vulnerables by Singrid Nunez is amazing. And Lucy by the Sea by Elizabeth Strout, Mm. both fantastic pandemic novels. They didn't make my list, but I'm throwing them out there (laughs) because that was your thing. So because that's how we roll. Yeah, that's how we roll here on the book. (laughs) My next book is North Woods by Daniel Mason. This is also out from Random House. This is one of those books that when it arrived and I read it, I was like, I'm never going to read this book. But it came in this beautiful box. It came with a wood bookmark. And I was like, gosh, they really tried really hard. So maybe I'll pick it up. I read it in a weekend. And what I love about it is the main character is a house. The main character is a house in the new world up in the Northeast up there in your all's neck of the woods. It starts as a hut for a woman living during sort of Puritan times. And we follow this house as it goes from owner to owner to owner to modern times. So the only consistent characters are the house and the land around it, the seasons as they change, the effects that those seasons have on people and the demographic of the region. And it is, again, one of those novels where the words are just so beautiful. It starts with a little bit of a punch in the face. So you have to allow that to get by because you have to sort of walk through a little bit of Oh, goodness, <laughs> you know, but once you get there and you sort of see how this settles down and then how it stays this one family for a while, then it changes hands. And to me, it was a master feat in fiction because you never had a main character. You had a main location. Yeah, you know, I started that one and, and it starts with a man and a woman running away or getting kicked out of the colony. I, I don't remember exactly. And I mean, granted, I was also sick when I was trying to read it. And I just thought, oh, 
not for me right now, but I really love the idea of it. I think it's so inventive to create a story around that. It's a really good audio book. So mm. give it an audio read. It's sort of just like this story you can just listen to about this place and whatever happened to it. I don't know. I had never read him. I never heard of him. I know he was shortlisted for the Pulitzer. Didn't know him. Fan. Super fan. Mm. Yeah, that was a big one on Book Browse. Book Browse readers, you know, that was one of their top reads. I was going to ask if it was good audiobook because I had the same experience as Chris, but I was also reading it as an ebook and I just thought I need to get my hands on the hard copy. People just love it. But I think you're right. I'm going to try to do a hybrid reading with both. Yeah. And I think yeah. it does some stuff with like form and different sort of textures as far as like what it brings that I think you sort of need the book for while you're listening to the audio, just so you can see the visual representation. That's great. Yeah, because I did the same thing, Emily. I was I started with an ebook. All right. So next up for me is a horror novel, September House by Carissa Orlando. This came out this year from Berkeley, and it is a debut novel, another debut, which I think it was one of the few horror novels I've read recently that I felt was like pitch perfect in terms of the tone of the novel and the characterization. The writer, I should say, Carissa is a psychologist, and it's a psychological horror novel in some ways. There's a lot of blood, much more (laughs) blood than I tend to enjoy, but it's a haunted house story. This husband and wife, they come across this big Victorian house that's for sale on Hawthorne Street, which is kind of like ding, 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 something's happening there. But really, it's about a a tough woman who fights back. And I don't want to say anything more. I really enjoyed it. And uh, Carissa Orlando is going to be a writer for me to keep my eye on. I hope she has something coming on soon. So my aunt, who is also a reader who I talk to every Sunday for one hour, is currently reading September House. Chris and was telling me, you need to pick this up. You need to pick this up. So there you go. My Aunt Deb also recommends. (laughs) All right, Aunt Deb. (laughs) And how do you feel about reading bloody books? Because I'm not a fan myself. You know, I have a story in my next book. I'll tell you a a little bit about me reading bloody books this year. (laughs) Okay. Something to look forward to. (laughs) My next book is nonfiction. It's Rough Sleepers by Tracy Kidder. I read this book hybridly, and he narrates the audiobook and did a really great job. And it's the story of Dr. Jim O'Connell, who was graduating from Harvard Medical School. He had just finished his residency, was given a really she-she assignment somewhere where he was going to do a fellowship. And then Harvard Medical School asked him if he'd be willing to stick around for one year to begin a program to help bring medical services to unhoused folks living around greater Boston. And it became his life's work. He never left. He never went to that fellowship. And he created this amazing system where they bring medical care to these people out on the streets. And it's a work of narrative nonfiction, and they follow the lives of some of these people. And it really gives you a greater understanding and more empathy, really, for these populations of people, so that you understand the backstory and why a lot of them can't find permanent housing. 
Highly recommend it. And it happened to also be one of my favorite Biblio adventures. That's what it, where I'm cheating you guys because we're supposed to be picking one Biblio adventure at the end and I can't. So I got to go up to Northampton, Mass. And there was a big event in a church with Tracy Kidder and Dr. O'Connell talking and it was fantastic. Rough Sleepers, Tracy Kidder, one of my favorite nonfiction writers. So here's my story about reading some horror this year. My husband and I have this tradition that at the, in January, we can each ask each other to do one thing for a year. So you can ask us to do whatever we want for a year. I sound very shallow. I was just like, please put your clothes in the dirty clothes hamper. That's all <laughs> I want for this year. Um, but, and he has not succeeded. I want to point that out, but that's fine. <laughs> Um, and you're not bitter at all. <laughs> he, my husband is not a reader, but he asked me to read a book a month with him all year. That was his request. And he reads horror and thrillers. That's not my normal jam. But this year, that plus the Britney Spears memoir have been his choices. <laughs> and so my next book is The Only One Left by Riley Sager. This is probably my favorite book that we have read this year. This is a sort of a reimagination of, um, what's the name? Oh my gosh, I'm totally blanking. But Lizzie Borden, the woman who supposedly murdered the people and then went on trial. So this is the story of a woman who is a home health professional who is asked to take care of a woman who lives in this mansion on a hill. And all we know about her is that she was the only member of her family to survive on a night where they were all killed. And there was no way to determine who the murderer was. And it is a little bit bloody, but it is really how nothing is what you think it is. The woman who is thought to be the killer is um, nonverbal. She's had a stroke and she can only move one hand. And when this home health nurse gets there, she finds a typewriter and the woman starts to tell the story of what really happened on that night her family died. Mm. And you find out no one is who they say they are. So many twists and turns. You'll think the book is over like nine times uh, before it actually winds <laughs> up doing. My husband has read a ton of Riley Sager, totally loves him. We've read this. And then Chris, my second book, was one of your favorite books a couple of years ago, The Southern Book Club's Guide to Killing Vampires. Yes. Yeah. We read every Grady Hendrix book this year. Um, that's also on our list. But highly recommend this if you want a thriller, you want a page turner. It is a little bit bloody. I mean, there's, a, there's some murder in it, but that's not really what it's about. It's about the intricacies of lies and secrets. And it has like that woman who's taking care of the house that you know not to trust. You know something's going on with her. You know it. Uh, <laughs> um, the only one left, Riley Sager, highly recommend. That sounds so creepy. Oh, my God. No, thank you. <laughs> I want to get up right now and make sure the door is locked. <laughs> oh, man, I have I have mad respect for you guys that can read books like that. I can only do one a month. And then I like read something that has like fairies and unicorns in it next. So, <laughs> And Russell, do you guys actually read it together or do you read it separately and then talk about it? We read it separately and we talk about it. I usually will listen to an audio when I have to commute for work. Um, but it's really fun because like he'll get up in the morning and because he, he's a late night person. I'm an early morning person. He'll be like, 
where are you in the book? I was listening <laughs> last night in the shower and I can't believe that this happened. And I'm like, okay. We can. And so it just, it's been a nice dynamic. It's been very different for us, you know, uh, 10 years together, something we've never done. That's a great idea. I love that idea. Yeah. Well, my next book is one that I read really early on last year, People of the Book, great book. by Geraldine Brooks. Great book. Yeah. This has been on my TBR since the book came out. It came out in 2008 um, from Penguin Books. I'm so glad I finally got to it. It was, you know, the book cougar's year of reading books about books. Yeah. So that is one of the things that um, compelled me, propelled me to pick it up. For those of you who don't know this book, it is basically following this ancient text. It's the Sarajevo Haggadah, which is um, a really unique, one-of-a-kind book. And the protagonist is a woman named Hannah Heath, who's from Australia. She's a rare book conservationist, and she's asked to come and assess the book. And that's where things take off. What happens is, is Hannah's discovering certain things within the physicality of that book. You go back in time then to when the book was first created or when something happened to the book along its journey. So it is one of those books that has so much in it about the art of bookmaking, love and betrayal and resiliency, international intrigue. There's so much in this book. I absolutely loved it. It's one of those books that as soon as I read the last page, I wanted to start reading it again. I know this is going to be on my reread list pretty soon. Again, Geraldine Brooks, People of the Book. Read it. <laughs> Second recommendation. I haven't read it in years. I think I read it in 2008, but I remember loving it. So, Yeah, brilliant. And it's got that nice new cover. She lives in Martha's Vineyard, and there's a great independent bookstore there that always has all of her books beautifully displayed. Yeah. Yeah, she's originally from Australia, but I think she's been here for quite a while. And um, yeah, they reissued a bunch of her books to match her latest release, which was Horse. Yeah. And this is bright. It's bright yellow and gold and red and some faint purple, whereas the original paperback cover was much darker. Yeah. On the Pulitzer for March, right? I think and so. March, yeah. the reimagining of Little Women from the point of view of the father. Right, out. Mr. March. Yeah, yeah we read that one a couple years ago for our um, Summer of Little Women. Yeah. It was a good one. He was a jerk anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Well, my next book is one that was Russell's top 10 in 2021. And it's Zori by Laird Hunt. I think it was your number one. It was my number one. Yeah. Yeah. So when I saw it for sale at a library book sale, I was like, well, if it was Russell's number one, I've got to get my hands on this. And it takes place in rural Indiana. It's very Midwest. And it's about this woman, Zori, whose parents die from diphtheria when she's young. And she gets sent to live with this, like, irascible aunt who basically doesn't like life anymore, (laughs) which was sad for this young child. And when she's of age, she moves out and starts to make a go of it on her own, goes to work 
for a very brief time at a factory where they paint the clock faces on clocks with this um, radium. Yeah. And she befriends some people there, even though she's not there for very long. And then she ends up marrying a man who dies in the war. And most of the novel is about her on this farm in rural Indiana. And the people who live, again, very small town life, right? There's not really a plot. I'm typically a plot driven reader. But the writing, oh my gracious, beautiful. Just on a sentence level, this book is wonderful. I can see why it was your number one, Russell, the year you read it. There's something to be said about a writer who can make us care about a single person in a small world where nothing really happens, but you really start to love them. That's like a special talent. I've read a couple of his books. He writes very short books, very different, different Mm. books. But he's just got a knack for character. That's yeah. Like next. I wanted to go out and read more. I have friends, obviously, because I'm from Ohio, I have friends that have read everything he's written because he is yeah. such a Midwestern writer. But this is my first novel of his. Again, it's Zori by Laird Hunt. Totally support that pick. Good choice. <laughs> Thank you. Gosh, I might have to read it next year. It'll be my time <laughs> next year. <laughs> well, I took a couple. It was his in 21. So you have a couple of years. You could skip yeah, a couple yeah, and then we can talk about it again. Um, my next book is The Late Americans by Brandon Taylor. I have to say Brandon Taylor is probably making his way into my top five writers of all time. This is his third novel. He's written two novels, Real Life which I know Emily and I read in a book club together, which was shortlisted for the booker. He had a short story collection, which won the O'Henry Short Story Prize, and then The Late Americans. There's this new sort of group of young gay writers that are writing novels that are just unapologetically gay. And I say that in, they just don't shy away from any of the parts that is the gay culture, which I have just found very refreshing. I know... Chris, you talked a little bit earlier about like having those people in the past for queer kids to look up to. And I just think queer kids today are really lucky because there are a lot of people making waves and they're going to have a lot of people to look up to. So Brandon Taylor loves a good old fashioned campus novel. This takes place in Iowa, the Iowa workshop. It's about a bunch of artsy kids, some too poor to really even get by, but immersed in their art. Some don't understand what money problems are and sort of those social dynamics that occur in college. It's about a small town, which the college is really it, right? That's all that's going on there. It's about being gay in America, being queer in America. And it really does a great job of showing the different age groups and how different age groups respond to coming out or not coming out. It's got all of this dynamic. It's just very dynamic. There is no real plot. But for me, it's all about the people, all about the interactions, all about the beauty of the word. Ryan and I talk about this often. When he writes, it feels like he's writing for me as a reader. And I just can't put his books down. He's such a generous writer, too. He blurbs books in a really generous way. I feel like I've never seen him in person. But when I've seen him talking to other authors, he just seems like he's really generous. He and Ryan are so similar in space and vibe. Just those generous people who don't take any BS, but also are kind and so smart. Just one of those people you're in the room and you just know you're not as smart as them. Ryan 
Brian mm-hmm. and Taylor, but just generous <laughs> with their time and their commitment. He's also a um, interesting. He's a photographer, and mm-hmm. with this arc when it arrived, they sent one of his photos. Oh, that's so cool! In the finished copy, it's beautiful. So I highly recommend all of his work. I just think he is next level. Cool. Well, my next book is How Can I Help You by Laura Sims. This is a new release, came out this year from um, Putnam's Sons. And I don't have a copy to hold up for Emily and Russell because I've given away every copy that I get my hands on. And it's the most gifted book that I've given this year. So it's a really short novel. It's a thriller. It's about two librarians who become obsessed with one another for very different reasons. And everything just goes from there. There's some funny bits if you're especially like a any kind of library probably but this is set in a public library so you have those quirky regular patrons that you have to deal with there's some interesting scenes with that and there's a book by Shirley Jackson that's involved but it is also more than just a nod to Shirley Jackson it's Shirley Jackson-esque in some ways so I really appreciated it for that Laura Sims is a poet. Her first four books were collections of poetry. This is her second novel, and I absolutely loved it. How Can I Help You by Laura Sims. Adding it to my husband and I's possible list for next year. Yeah, it's a fun one. That was another Biblio adventure we did. We got to go see her (sighs) in conversation with Paul Tremblay up in Cambridge at Porter Square Books. Such a great night. Yes, one of my favorite Biblio adventures yeah. for sure. Paul Tremblay uh, wrote The Cabin at the End of the World. Is that right? Is that him? Yeah, he did. Yeah. Cabin at the End of the World is one of his. And then his latest was The Beast You Are, which is a collection of stories. And that's what he talked about when we saw him with Laura Sims. And I had read his book, Devil's Rock, a couple years ago. And then it was something with ghosts was the one you read a head full of ghosts. Yeah, that's when I read this year, which was close to being on my top 10 list, but it didn't quite make it. But I enjoyed that very much. And a lot of people say that a head full of ghosts is his masterpiece and their favorite Paul Tremley book. Yeah, I think the person who introduced him that night said that, didn't she? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Well, my next book is a novel, The Vanishing Act of Esme Lennox by Maggie O'Farrell. This is my year of trying to read more Maggie Farrell. That was one of my reading intentions at the beginning of the year. It's intertwined lives of two sisters. Well, at the very beginning, you meet them when they're very young, but most of the book is when they're much older. And one of the sisters has been held up in a insane asylum, essentially, for 60 years. And the other sister's daughter, so the aunt's niece, gets a phone call saying, your aunt is being released from this insane asylum. And she didn't even know that she had this aunt because her mother had always told her she was an only child. And so then the novel takes off from there. And it's really about family secrets. And some of them are quite shocking. I loved this book so much. I read it in one sitting on a flight to visit Aunt Ellen in Berkeley. I was so glad to finish it because then I gave it to her and she loved it so much. 
I really think Maggie O'Farrell is what you were just saying about Brandon Taylor, one of my top authors. Again, it's called The Vanishing Act of Esme Lennox by Maggie O'Farrell. Maggie O'Farrell is so interesting. This is why I love these things that we do in the books thing. Maggie O'Farrell has been one of those authors that I have read one book and tried in many others, and she just doesn't work for me. And I'm always like, people love her. And I'm always like, why can't I love her? I want to love her so bad. Well, I can say because I'm trying to read all of her books, There are some that are much harder than others. This one is definitely one of my, if not my favorite. Well, Hamnet might be my favorite. I don't know. See, Hamnet was the one I finished that just didn't work for me. And then I was just like, but everyone says it's brilliant. And so then I feel bad. No, a lot of people didn't like Hamnet. Mm. And yeah, my theory about Hamnet, I think if you're a mother, Hamnet, it really gets in deep. And if you're not, maybe it's not as meaningful. I don't know. I have also known plenty of mothers who read it and didn't like it. So that might not be the right theory. (laughs) That's why we're all here to recommend all these different books. That's right. right? Did you read that book, Monster's Ball? Because that was in my top 10, maybe the year before. I bought Monster's Ball. Okay. I have it on my shelf. It's got that great cover. This book, this novel, The Vanishing Act of Esme Lennox reminded me a lot of that. Because it's the whole thing about like women losing their voice and being, you know, put away in insane asylums for really not doing anything at all. Spoiler. Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, Russell, you mentioned buying a book and it's on your shelf. Do you tend to keep all the books that you purchase? I know you also get a lot of arcs. How do you decide what to keep? Well, this is a conversation that may that is like likely to lead to divorce. I keep everything. <laughs> we have a three bedroom house and every room looks like this because I keep everything. Listeners, there's a solid wall of books behind Russell is what he's referring to. And this is the room with the least books. So <laughs> imagine I need to do something with some of the arcs that I get and find a place and a home for them. But I just love a house with books. So I'm thinking we just need to move. Yeah, bigger house. A library. Yeah. Yeah. Build an annex. That's the whole (laughs) library. (laughs) Well, we we have talked about if we ever do move somewhere with a lot of land, my husband's like already planned like buying those shipping containers and (laughs) turning them into like some giant library just for my books. Oh my gosh, that would be so fun. Yeah, it would be. (laughs) Yeah, totally. You know, money, time, work. You could make it like a little lending library. Get really cool ah. book plates and put them on there. Yeah, and yeah that would be so fun. <laughs> okay, so going from one a book a little bit about mental health to another is a book <laughs> that I picked up because I am obsessed with the author's name. It's called The Daughtership by Boo Trundle. And I think Boo Trundle is the most fantastic name <laughs> I've heard in ages. Pantheon sent me this when I read about it, and it is a trip of a book. It is a book about mental health. Our main character, her name is Catherine. She's a married woman. She's going through some issues, and she's dealt with a lot of trauma in her past. And the way she's manifested that, as in her mind, she has a submarine that has all of these children that represent different times of her life, different things that have happened to her. The book vacillates between their point of views, where they basically tell you stories about how they came into being, what event created this aspect of Catherine. 
and the submarine has a leak and things are breaking because Catherine is breaking. Mm. You watch as these characters in Catherine's head are trying to figure out how to save the ship, which is really how to save Catherine. And then Catherine is dealing with her husband, dealing with her children, and just dealing with the fact that life's getting out of control for her. It is the weirdest freaking book that I have read this year. I don't even know really what it was about, but I adored it. And I am obsessed with her. I want, yeah, I think she does TV in general. I think that's, she's done that before, but this is her first debut novel. It came out in June and I am obsessed with The Daughter Ship by Boo Trundle. I wish more people would read it. Yeah, I've never heard of it. It's not a book that you will not think about, if that makes sense. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That metaphor of a sinking submarine being a person going under. Mm. Oh, my God. And a submarine, how they can just implode, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yikes. Well, my next book is, no surprise, probably, The Peabody Sisters, Three Women Who Ignited American Romanticism by Meghan Marshall. I have talked a lot about this book because it took me a while to get through it because it is a big old thick book, but I adored this so much. It is about the Peabody sisters, three sisters whose lives basically spanned the 19th century. It's about their lives. So it's biography of them, biography of their relationships, the sisters, but it also brings in as really good biographies do so much of the time period So you get to really understand the world that they're moving through and what came before in their mother's world and what was coming in the future a little bit, because this book only goes up until they're in their hitting maybe 40 years of age. So it's really heavy on their earlier years until two of them get married. And then their relationships obviously change a lot because of that. They're, they're moving into different circles and states and things like that. Some of the things that you learn about, like paintings in the early 19th century, copies of paintings was something that established artists did. They would copy paintings. And so you would buy a copy of a painting. Now we look at that as like, that's awful, you know, copying a painting, especially if it's incredibly well done that it could be considered an original. And I mean, you know, that's a different story about fake art and art scams and everything like that. But like, when you look at it, paintings were how people viewed things. There was no photography back then. So making a copy of a painting is like us having a print of something. You know, I didn't think about painting in quite that way. You understand different stages of art and what different types of art meant to different people at different times and why, things like that. Brilliant book. The Peabody Sisters definitely need to be more well-known because they influenced guys like Emerson and Thoreau and Hawthorne, very important women. Yeah, and it took her 20 years to write that book. Yeah, a lot, a lot of original research in the archives. And then she also attempted to read much of what the sisters actually read. So she could also understand their intellectual development and thought a little bit better than just reading their letters, which, you know, reading letters is a great way to get to know somebody, especially when they're writing to different people and you can see how they present themselves differently to different people. Great book. One, probably one of my favorite biographies of all time. 
So that was the Peabody Sisters by Megan Marshall. My next book is a novel by Jesmyn Ward called Let Us Descend. This is one that when it arrived, I got an early arc. And when it arrived at Book Cougars headquarters, I screamed out loud. I was so excited to get my hands on it early. It also is one that Chris had a hashtag going this summer, Dante on a doily. And Dante appeared here because <laughs> Let Us Descend is from Dante's Inferno. And it's a story of an enslaved woman named Annis. I'm just going to read Roxanne Gay's review because I think she sums it up the best. She says, Jasmine Ward is brilliant and no one writes like her. This novel is lush and painful and expertly rendered. Annis's story is so rich with detail and the prose is suffused with a sensory vibe I found hypnotic. I loved the bonds between women, the spiritual elements, the way the women in this novel fought for dignity, sometimes in unexpected ways. Their humanity was a bright beacon in a story of how black people were so egregiously and mercilessly subjected to profound inhumanity. This is another masterful novel from the best among us. I mean, it sums up the novel so well, but also I really do think Jasmine Ward is one of the best writers writing today. And she's won a lot of awards and gotten a lot of praise. So other people feel that way too. Won't be surprised if that book wins the Pulitzer next year. Yeah. Have you read it, Russell? No. And the only reason, one, Jasmine Ward Stan, I think she is like freaking amazing fiction, nonfiction. That book is sad in the first bit. (laughs) Yeah. sad and i just haven't found myself in a space to sort of dive into that sadness yet Mm -hmm. but i stand by anything i'm sure it's utterly brilliant yeah it's sad i'm not gonna say it's not sad but it's another one of those where if you can get through some of that incredibly painful parts it is uplifting in the end which i really appreciated so again that's called let us descend by jasmine ward And it's funny, I was just talking about how sad that book is and how hard it is to get through. And then the book I'm going to talk about now is utterly sad. (laughs) Well, we can only Um, do so many. (laughs) I know. In Memoriam by Alice Wynn is a book that will break your heart. This is a story set during World War I. It starts at an all-boys school where we meet a group of boys who are basically reading the obituaries of students who have left their boys' school, gone to the war, and died. But no one in England, where the school is, really knows how bad the war is. There's like this glorified version of it. We have two main characters, two boys, who are absolutely, utterly infatuated with each other, but both of them say... Well, he wouldn't like me that way. So they don't ever admit who they are. One is slightly older. His parents are, he's half German. And because of the war and some of the stuff that happens, he winds up getting a lot of pressure to go join the war for the UK so that no one will talk badly about his family. And he gets there and he starts to see the terror that it is. And he writes letters and he tells this boy, Elwood, who he really is quite in love with, don't come. Please do not join. Please do not come here. And Elwood thinks that he really wants him there, so he joins. And they both go to the front and they realize what a travesty World War I was and how none of the reality was making it home. And terrible things happen. War is terrible, if you didn't know. It's horrible. 
and things happen to their friends they happen to their to each other there's a lot of hardship and loss but at the heart of it they finally admit to each other that more than anything they want one another and war sure tries to get in the way of that it is beautiful i was talking about this in a video i just did and a lot of people said that this was their favorite book of the year I don't know that all of this is historically accurate. I'll be honest with you. I don't fact check my fiction. But a lot of people were like they were so everyone was so okay with them and I'm like because they probably were. We hear about all of the bad. No one really cared. And I think that these two guys just found each other and they were able to sort of get through life together and see all of this and deal with all of that tragedy. You will cry. You will cry. Um, this one Waterstones book of the year in the UK, she is like this slight little, she looks like a Jane Austen character. Mm, she sure does. <laughs> you know, that she wrote this just heart-wrenching book. I don't know. In Memoriam, Alice Wynn, Cry Your Eyes Out, Thank Me Later. It makes <laughs> me think a little bit of that John Boyne World War One novel. I can't think of the title of it right now. Did he write The Boy in the Striped Pajamas? Yeah, he wrote that. But that's not the one you're talking about. There's a couple of authors with like a Boyd last name that I forget. The Inhuman Heart Boyd and the John Boyd. I always get them confused. Yeah, this one is about, is it, um, well, he wrote The Heart's Invisible Furies. Oh, The Absolutist. Oh, I really like The Absolutist. Yeah. Yeah, that brings to mind that novel of his. Well, you know, and people see what they want to see. And the whole thing about World War One, you know, we read two novels by Pip Williams this year, The Dictionary of Lost Words, and then The Bookbinder. And The Bookbinder, there's some bits in there that talk about how letters home from the trenches in World War One, how they were censored, so that the soldiers weren't really able to talk about what was really happening. They always had to reflect the glory of the crown in England and all of that as opposed to the horrors of war. All right, I have to get on, right, with my last book? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell I'm stalling a little yes. bit? Um, <laughs> so my last book, and I think my favorite, is Emily Dickinson, Face to Face, by Martha Dickinson Bianchi. This is a new edition put out by McNally Editions 2023, edited with a foreword by the poet Anthony Madrid. And Emily Dickinson face-to-face, -face, Martha Dickinson Bianchi was Emily Dickinson's niece, one of her nieces. And she was a novelist in her own right. And when she was, I believe, in her 60s, she wrote a memoir of her aunt. And as Anthony Madrid makes clear, like, this is one of the most intimate portraits we have of Emily Dickinson and what she was really like in the eyes of a child, you know, written through the memories of a 60 something year old woman. It's just lovely. It's a really thin little book. I think the two volumes that Martha had put out, one of them contained a lot of letters and snippets and things like this. But her memoir was just so charming because it opens when she was like four years old and her parents are dropping her off at Emily Dickinson's house because everyone's going to church, but Emily doesn't go to church. So she babysits the kids while everyone else goes to church. And she just always has such a great time with her aunt Emily. You just get this picture of her as being a vibrant, 
middle-aged, strong woman. And as Martha says, like she was shy, but she was supremely confident at the same time. And there are just some funny snippets. Everyone knows about her being kind of a recluse and not coming downstairs when people came to visit and stuff. And like there's one scene where one of her friends comes over and he says, Emily, you damned rascal, none of your nonsense. Come down at once. I've come all the way from Springfield to see you. And so like she does come downstairs. And as Anthony writes in his foreword, it's just so great to see that one of her friends is calling her out and resisting her shtick, as he calls it. You could just imagine that a good friend saying, come on, Emily, get down here. Yeah, a lovely small little book. I've read it twice already. Just so charming. And the intro that he writes, Anthony Madrid, it's a bit snarky because there's a lot of drama after Emily Dickinson dies when more of her poems are discovered and her sister Lavinia asks Sue to put on an edition of her poems. Sue apparently doesn't act fast enough or who knows what, but like within nine months, she asks Emily's brother Austin's lover, mistress, to edit a volume of poems instead. So there's a lot of drama going on around this. It's just a fun portrait of Emily, and the introduction is very entertaining. And these McNally editions, they're reissues of books that, as it says here, are not widely known, but have stood the test of time that remain as singular and engaging as when they were written. And it looks like they're up to 18 now of these different editions. And I'm so curious to explore some of their other ones as well. So again, that's Emily Dickinson Face to Face by Martha Dickinson Bianchi. My next book is a novel, Moonrise Over New Jessup by Jamila Minix. This won the Penn Bellwether Prize for debut novel, which is done by Barbara Kingsolver. And then it was also nominated for the Center for Fiction First Novel Prize. She didn't win, but she was nominated. Because then when I, I was surprised that more people haven't talked about this book. And then I saw, well, you know, she did get that notice, which is pretty darn good. And it takes place in 1957 and looks at the civil rights movement through a lens that I had never seen before, which is probably why it won the Penn Bellwether, because I know that's what Barbara Kingsolver is looking for to kind of like learn something new. And Alice Young is fleeing her home in Alabama, because her landlord was doing some inappropriate things. And she's trying to make it to Chicago by train, which is where her sister has moved. And she ends up getting off the train in New Jessup, Alabama. Unbeknownst to her, this is a place where black people live free of Jim Crow South laws. They have autonomy. And a lot of people, it turns out, were not interested in desegregation. They believed that they would live a better quality of life if they lived in a segregated town. And that's what this novel is about. And when she first arrives, she's totally flummoxed by the rights that she has living there as a black person. And then slowly as she's embraced by this small community, she learns to live that way, but also recognizing how fleeting that can be, because she's lived with desegregation, but without having the best rights. 
her sister, she's always kind of pining for this sister that lives in Chicago. That's part of the story arc. And then she also falls in love with someone who doesn't have the same feelings and gets involved in some of the Black Panther type movements. I learned so much reading this novel, and I thought it was so well written as a debut. So I'm looking forward to seeing if she has more to write. Again, it's called Moonrise Over New Jessup by Jamila Minix. All right, Mr. Number 11, what you got? I might have a number 11, too. <laughs> well, I can stop at 10 because I know we've been talking a while. I mean, um, and uh, oh, have- no, no, no. We want to know. <laughs> Come on. My 11th book would be Family Meal by Brian Washington. Brian Washington is one of those young Black queer writers right now that everything he writes is fantastic. He wrote a short story collection called Lot that was everywhere for a while. And then he wrote Memorial, which was out a couple of years ago and now Family Meal. This is one of those books that broke my heart. It's about a man who is living in Texas when his partner is killed. And I'm not going to go much into it because it's so important to figure out in the story why that happens this happens in los angeles and then he comes home to houston where he was from and he sort of just gives up on life and he's just like drinking and drugs and hooking up with as many men as possible and just not really dealing with his grief when he runs into a boy that he was best friends with his whole life that his family raised him after his parents died who is dealing with his own sort of coming of age story and it's all about your made family and dealing with tragedy and how you get through it and how sometimes you have to get to the brink of almost oblivion before you can finally turn a corner but throughout the whole thing food is very very important the family that raised him runs a bakery in houston that's very famous he cooked with his prior lover and that was a big part of who they were and he's very good in the kitchen and it starts to reignite him it's all about making those choices that make you happy this is again another book by an author who is unapologetically gay it deals with the drug culture that's part of gay culture it deals with sex it deals with the risks of the lifestyle but it also deals with who do you really call your person and why and sometimes that goes extremely sideways but they are always your person if that makes sense Mm -hmm. it's very poetic it has some amazing pictures in it brian washington's partner is japanese and so there's always an aspect of his novels where he's has a character going to japan it's about translation it's about language it's about so much i just think he's a brilliant brilliant writer so i didn't leave him off my list he was my 11. does it have japanese food (laughs) It has um, some Japanese food and it has the best friend is also mixed race. And so there's a lot of Asian food influence, a lot of black culture influence in the food. It just, you'll be hungry. I promise. Mm -hmm. Brian Washington does a lot of recipes. I think in the New Yorker or the New York times, like don't quote me on which paper, but Ryan, our friend will often cook them for our Saturday dinners. Mm. And they're always fantastic. So check that out. Oh, well, I don't really have an 11th. I debated whether or not to put uh, the Divine Comedy on my list by Dante, which was a big part of my reading year. But then I thought that would just be pandering to the literary gods. (laughs) So I didn't. 
<laughs> I'm surprised by that. I thought you would. So I've chosen 11th. I thought I'd get away with cheating because this is my favorite book recommended by a listener to me. Thank you to Barb. The Properties of Thirst by Marianne Wiggins. This was the New Yorker's best book of 2022. I had never heard of her. She was nominated or a finalist, I should say, for the Pulitzer Prize for her other novel, The Evidence of Things, which our mutual friend Janice said was one of her favorite books. I'd never heard of her until Barb recommended it. And um, it's about Rocky Rhodes, who's living in the desert of California, protecting his water rights from the LA Water Authority, who's, you know, draining all the water to the city. He's there with his two twins and his beloved wife, who is French, who passes away from cancer. So Rocky's sister Cass comes to help him raise his children. And he's all about his family and protecting the ranch. And then as time passes in the novel, 1941 arrives, the attack on Pearl Harbor takes place. And the government comes to set up a Japanese internment camp right by Rocky's ranch, which has an extraordinary impact on their lives. And part of why Barb recommended this book to me is because there's a thread of the novel that involves a lot of beautiful French cooking that I really did enjoy. So highly recommend this book. And this paperback copy we just received from the publisher, Simon and & Schuster, and this is going to be our Patreon giveaway for January. Again, that's Properties of Thirst, Marianne Wiggins. That book was on my radar. Like in the back of my head, I had heard about it. So now I know I need to get it. Yes, it's really good. So favorite Biblio adventure? I have two that I can't really pick between. But so Ryan is my Chris, my Emily. Um, Ryan uh, and I do a lot of our literary events together. And we've done two this year that just really stick out. One was the City Arts and Lecture Series in San Francisco, where we saw Brandon Taylor in conversation. But just when you get to meet someone in person that you have idolized for so long, and they turn out to be so wonderful. We've all had that instance where we've met an author and been like, oh, okay, not great. <laughs> he was he was charming and funny and lovely and smart. And Ryan and I just had the most wonderful time because we love his books. We love him. And we also went to the, this tiny bookstore in Oakland that I don't know how it happens, but she gets amazing authors, the owner of it. A great good place for books in Oakland. If you're ever in Oakland, it's a fantastic little bookstore. But we got to meet and see Lauren Groff this year for The Vaster Wilds. I own every Lauren Groff book. So of course I brought all my hard copies and I was like, I need you to sign everything. And she was wonderful and charming and smart and everything you wanted her to be. And she's like in this weird church building, which should never have been the place to host this event, basically screaming at us so that she can be heard. Chris, you would have adored it. It was all about how she read these old books in college, these tales of women in the wilderness during Puritan, they would just flee and they get taken by Indian families and then they'd come back and they would write their stories, but then they would be like romanticized or published or made in such a way to tear down this culture and how that inspired her to write The Vaster Wilds. And 
Avastra Wilds could have been on this list too, by the way. But it was just amazing to meet two authors that I adore. And with Ryan, just sit there and listen and just like be in awe of the brilliance. I think those were my favorite two. Did you know that Lauren Groff and her husband are opening a bookstore in Florida? I know. My Instagram friend, Hunter, who is Shelf by Shelf, got to interview Lauren Groff this year on Instagram for Riverhead. And yeah, he had all this insight into what was going to happen in Lauren Groff's life. It was crazy, but it was really exciting. Fun. That's great. (laughs) Well, I kind of have a tie as well. And they both involve our Scarlet Summer. I was so happy to finally make it to Inside the Old Manse, that home owned by the Emerson family that Hawthorne and Sophia first moved into after they were married. That's a place I've wanted to get into for at least 10 years. And every time I've been there, it's been closed. And that is the home where they had carved in the window with a diamond some phrases. And I had read about that way back, like when I was in graduate school in my 20s. And I thought it was the most romantic thing. And I'd seen pictures of it and stuff, but nothing beats being there in person to see it. So that was so lovely to finally be inside. And then another home with a literary history is the House of the Seven Gables. I loved being inside of that home. And what made that Bibli adventure so much fun is that Karen, one of our listeners, um, Barker for Books on Instagram, joined us. And that was just such a fun time. So those are my two faves. That was a great day. We laughed a lot. We also walked around Salem to look at different places where Hawthorne had lived and One guy who was living in one of his homes was like, no, he's never spoken to me. I don't believe in any of that stuff. And then when we got to another spot, the guy who lived there was like, he haunts me all the time. You know, it was (laughs) hilarious. That was a great day. And I agree, Chris made more special by the fact that we had one of our listeners with us. And that was one of mine. So I don't have to talk about it. So I will just um, say that The Biblio adventure that I did on my own that was my favorite was going to visit Aunt Ellen. So I guess I wasn't really alone, but in Berkeley. And we did 10 bookstores and three libraries and about a million little free libraries in the course of a very short time. So that was really fun. Nice. Well, we also wanted to end this episode, which is full of a lot of great recommendations with three books each that we're looking forward to in 2024. The first one that I am, and I'm actually reading many of these. So James by Percival Everett that's coming out in March of 2024. This sounds like something the book cougars should do, by the way. Um, So James is a reimagining of Huckleberry Finn told from the point of view of Jim. So clearly you just read both of these books like you did Scarlet Letter, and it makes sense. If you haven't read Percival Everett, stop what you're doing and pick up one of his books. He is a literary genius that all writers read, but not enough general readers read. He is so smart. And this book takes on race from page one. And he is just so good with dialogue and dialect and character and i highly recommend it james percival everett coming out in march from double day highly recommend he was just here for the wyndham campbell prize and i'm pretty sure there's a documentary about him i think there is yes i'll put that in the show notes yeah 
Yeah, I highly recommend the trees. I highly recommend Erasure. Telephone was shortlisted for the Pulitzer. He's one of those authors I just don't think enough people read, but everyone in the literary world knows of, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So, and I'm going to take a huge left turn and I'm going to recommend The Fury by Alex Michaelides. He has a beautiful Greek last name, which I am not saying correct. This is coming out from Celadon. You may remember him for The Silent Patient that came out a few years ago which is the thriller I give everybody who says they need to write a thriller. But this is about a reclusive Hollywood starlet who owns an island in Greece where she gets a group of friends together and there's a murder. And it's this tale of what happened to lead up to that murder. And I started it and I was like, oh, I'll just get it. Next thing I knew, I was 100 pages. Like it was just like, <laughs> he writes thrillers like no other. And then last is one of my most anticipated books of the last few years, because I was so excited to see that Rachel Kong was coming out with a new book. But Rachel Kong's Real Americans, she wrote Goodbye Vitamin, which was everywhere a couple of years ago. It's her new novel. It's coming out in April from Kanaf. It's the story of three generations, a Chinese woman who makes a deal to leave China during the Chinese Cultural Revolution because she's a scientist and she comes to America. She has to make another deal to keep her family safe. Her daughter, who has sort of been in America, figured some stuff out, and then her son. And it's a generational tale. Her son is raised in the Pacific Northwest, has a white father who wants nothing to do with him. And whether or not that's really a freedom or is that a curse, what it, you got to take it. It's got the most beautiful cover. Mm -hmm. It is just freaking gorgeous. Goodbye Vitamin was one of my favorite books that I read a couple of years ago. So I cannot wait. Three that I'm looking forward to. Um, the first is Last Night by Luann Rice. This one's coming out February 1st. Uh, by uh, from Thomas and Mercer. And it's a mystery thriller. But what I'm most excited about is that it's set in the Ocean House in Rhode Island during a blizzard. <laughs> so there's nothing like a blizzard on the shoreline to get me to say, yes, I'm reading that hands down. I also enjoy Luann Rice's books. So looking forward to that one. The second one I'm really excited about is Memory Piece by Lisa Cole. This is coming out March 19th. It's about three lifelong friends and what they go through from childhood through adulthood and that disillusionment that happens. The tech boom happens. I think it starts in like the 80s and it ends somewhere in the 2040s, I believe. Lisa Cole's first book came out in 2017, The, the Leavers which I really enjoyed. I think the three of us probably all read that about a, a young woman who flees China with her young baby boy and what they face in the States, I believe in New York City. So memory piece, uh, Lisa Ko. And then the one I'm super excited about is Finding Margaret Fuller by Allison Pataki. This is coming out March 19th as well from Valentine Books. Margaret Fuller is one of my favorite 19th century historical women. She's a great foremother of feminism, such an intellectual powerhouse. And I can't wait to read this novelization about some part of her life. I haven't read anything by Pataki, but she's written a handful of books already. So Margaret Fuller will be in mature hands. It's also interesting to know that Lori Lego Albanese 
is also writing a novel about Margaret Fuller to come out sometime, I hope, in the near future. So it's great to see Margaret Fuller having a bit of a renaissance. Well, one of my upcomings was Real Americans by Rachel Kong. So Russell and I share that enthusiasm. I too loved Goodbye Vitamin. And that book, Real Americans, comes out April 30th. And we'll put the release dates on all of these upcoming for y'all in the show notes. And then the other one is a little bit of a cheat because I already read it. But I didn't want to talk about it because I read it so early before it came out. But I want everybody to get this book. And it's called Praise Song for the Kitchen Ghosts, Stories and Recipes from Five Generations of Black Country Cooks. And this is by Crystal Wilkinson. This book comes out January 23rd. So just around the corner. She is the former poet laureate of Kentucky. She wrote a novel called The Birds of Opulence, which I have talked about on the podcast. And Kendra recently on Read Appalachia read that novel and talked to Crystal about it. She also has some poetry collections out. This is a food memoir. It's beautifully designed, like it's filled with beautiful photography. The font they used is really cool. Beautiful recipes, wonderful book. I highly recommend you get it. And then the other one I'm really excited about is Twilight Garden by Sarah Nisha Adams. This comes out on April 9th. Um, this is her sophomore novel. Her debut was The Reading List, which was our second quarter read-along for our year of reading books about books. This takes place in London, and there's two neighbors, and there's an abandoned community garden between their homes that a curmudgeonly resident just wants nothing to do with and doesn't want anyone to be in that space. And then one day a package lands on his doorstep that's filled with photographs of the garden in its heyday when it was beautiful. And so change ensues. It's lots of good stuff to look forward to, y'all. Yes. And what Russell has to look forward to now is his supper. Thank you, Russell. (laughs) Thank you for having me. I so appreciate it. This is always so much fun to do. So fun to see this list of books. I always like to see it all typed up and see all the directions we went. (laughs) Thank you for participating with our fourth annual Top Tens. Yes. Thank you for having me. And Happy New Year, everyone. Yes, Yes. indeed. Happy Happy reading year. year. Thanks for listening to The Book Cougars with Chris Wallach and Emily Fine. We'll be back again with another episode in two weeks. Until then, come chat with us on social media, Goodreads, or email us at bookcougars at gmail.com. If you'd like to help support our podcast, please tell others about us, leave a review wherever you listen, and consider becoming a patron. Even a dollar a month is a big help. Learn more about that on our website, bookcougars.com where you'll find the show notes for this and all of our past episodes. Thanks, everybody. This episode was edited by Pat Keogh Sound Design.